0: What's up, everybody? Ready to go? My name's Tim. You all know me. I'm one of the pastors here um, at Ritten Branch Church, and we are uh, a church that is, believes in um, sort of theological, conversational theology, a theology that arises out of um, the lives of the people who are actually living it. And so I think that's really important for our conversation today. This month, we are setting sail on a journey. journey about sex and sex related things sounds like a orgy cruise or something like that but that's not what I mean we are sailing together to talk about sex stuff Um, why are we doing this I think that's an important question why does the church uh, need to talk about this why does the community need to talk about this one reason is that religion and in the Western world Christianity uh, religion has played a major role in The way that we humanoids think about this stuff, right? Um, a lot of it has not been great, unfortunately. I do. I would argue, and I've seen this in some of my research this week, right? Like, there actually is a lot of great stuff, and I've long been a sort of proponent, um, arguing the idea with people that religion isn't simply to blame for everything that's gone wrong in in, in civilization and in history, and that's something I think um, an idea that people tend to take on pretty well, you know. You hear like good progressives, for example, be like, you can't blame Islam for terrorism, right? But when it comes to Christianity, I think uh, for whatever reason in our culture, we're a little bit less willing to say that. But I do think that's important to see. There's good stuff there. Regardless, we cannot sort of just wave away all the terrible things, harm, violence, that have been done in God's name. And because of that, uh, within this space, such wounds that have come from those things ought to be tended to. We, uh, this church, we, each other, this community, I think we can be in some ways a balm, a healing thing for one another. Secondly, one of the primary reasons I think a community such as this is generally useful in the world is that it is our very practice, a practice we've elevated into the sort of hard to define level of ritual, right? It is our practice to gather together to have uncommon conversations. And while a lot of us may um, very well have a lot of sex talk stuff with our friends and our homies, um, I would argue that as a society, we're not very good at it. Our public discourse is wanting. Uh, and for people of our general age group, right, the ever hated and shitted upon millennial population, the confusion about this stuff is pretty deep, I feel like. I've asked a lot of people in my life, um, throughout my 20s and into my 30s now, about like, what's your sexual ethic? And many people have given me many different answers about this, right? And mostly with a degree of confidence that tends towards not that confident, right? Um, I have undergone myself a number of changes in my attitudes towards a lot of things, uh, as I would imagine many of you have as well. So the point here is, We're not, we may on this journey, on this ship metaphor, right, Uh, we may not all arrive on the same soil at the end of it, Um, but rather what I'm trying to do here, what I hope we can do is, number one, find some sense of safety and healing for ourselves, Um, and number two, be challenging the presuppositions we we hold regarding this stuff in order that we can um, find a more grace-filled, more loving path uh, forward, one that is grace-filled and loving towards ourselves as much as it is towards other people. Because in case you haven't noticed, that's sort of our MO here, right? This is what we do. Um, I'm just trying to think about coining this term. This is the first attempt, so don't don't, uh, don't get too mad at me if you don't like it. But what I would call something like charitable destabilization, and charitable in the sense of like love, caritas, agape, not like here's a dollar charity, but charity in that way. charitable. Destabilization, right? this method of investigating something, articulating it, so we can be transformed by it. In our welcome tables this past season, we've used the terms in our questions if you've seen the meditation, revelation, application, right? this sort of similar analogous things, path we take. So this is a long prelude, but one more thing must be said, I think is important. Sex stuff is uh, uh, very intimate, it's powerful, it's tied to our deepest, shit Um, good things bad things painful things for some of us this kind of conversation is is difficult and I want to really acknowledge that difficulty Um, and I think we need to keep that in mind as we move forward and even have conversations amongst each other at welcome tables or whatever it may be and our goal should never be to discount one another's experiences but also if we're not here to bring some kind of challenge a gentle nudge in some cases, a prophetic and rebellious shout in other cases, then we would not really be an authentic community. And so that is a thing that we need to keep in mind too. This is a term um, from Mickey Scott Bay Jones. She um, is a thinker, speaker, public theologian person. Um, this, this phrase I heard in a, in a seminar or a conference I went to, brave space, Right, we want to create brave space for one another. This is what she says, together we will create brave space because there is no such thing as a safe space. A brave space is where we call each other to more truth and love. Something to think about. So with all that said, I wanna start by telling you the story of how I lost my virginity. Don't worry, it's really a, a lot less about the actual event than it is all the things surrounding it. You know, and I don't, I don't think my mom knows how to play a podcast, so I'm, I feel pretty good about that. Um, it may be unclear in some ways what the point of the story is, but I'm trying to model something here, so just go with me on it. The details are a bit fuzzy. I was, uh, I think, 20 or 21, I, had a, I spent a long time yesterday trying to think about what age I was and I just couldn't quite pin it down. Um, I had a girlfriend at the time for about a year. We were both very good Christian kids to varying degrees. Certainly the type who had no plans to sleep with um, anyone until we were married. And this was a big thing to me, right? Like deeply ingrained in my mind, my body, my spirit, and in my ethic, the way I saw what it meant to live a good life. And the way that I saw my life unfolding before me into the future is all a part of that, right? I was very curious about sex, as a lot of people are. I thought about it a lot. A lot. (laughs) I'm ashamed to say how much I thought about it sometimes. Um, I had planned to get married quite young, right? Like a lot of evangelicals do, lest the burning in my loins would totally consume me. I had to get it out. So you try to get married, like, right out of college. That was my goal, 23, 24 maybe at the most that'd be pushing it. I'd even put together a sex playlist, a mix CD as it were back in those days, in which I would compile uh, the songs I would play on my wedding night to just to set the perfect mood. I can't remember, unfortunately for you all, exactly what was on that playlist. I do know that U2's With or Without You was, was on there. <laughs> which in retrospect is a strange, Song to put on a losing your virginity, wedding night playlist. Uh, if you didn't grow up with this mindset, and I know not all of you did, uh, it's difficult to describe the extent to which preserving your virginity was. It's uh, not even like a debatable question. I don't remember ever deciding to do it. Right. It was just kind of a concrete reality, like gravity or something. Right. And and. In that way, also, my life sort of always carried a kind of undercurrent of guilt and shame with it. At every church retreat, they would gather teenage boys together, and they would say to them, if you are watching porn and masturbating, you need to pray for forgiveness right now. And of course, every head in that place bowed to pray, right? Because that's what a lot of boys do, right? To finally get married and to consummate was like freedom for me, right? freedom from myself. For your sakes, Sarah, I'll spare the details. The actual details of of what happened are uh, very mundane and boring, as sometimes they are. Um, It was unplanned, obviously. (laughs) We were just sort of laying together, um, hanging out, got caught up in the moment, right? And before I could even have like one rational thought in my brain, it was over. I hardly remember any of it. And all of a sudden, like Adam and Eve, you know, taking the bite of that fruit, my eyes were opened up in a very uh, spiritual and literal way, right? I realized what I had done, and I remember going to the couch and just crying, like weeping. just said, oh, I can't believe I did this, you know? My girlfriend at the time, she didn't cry. Um, she didn't love the Lord like I did, apparently, but she didn't cry. What's also strange is that we never talked about it, we never talked about it, um, we continued to be together for a while after that, I don't remember us ever talking about it, we never had sex again. Uh, it was like it never happened. And why did I cry, I mean, I still think about this from time to time, Like the answer, obvious answer is something like, you know, I had forsaken a vow or whatever think that that is um, definitely a part of it but I also think there is a part that felt to me like you know if you were trying to get to an event that you re- have been anticipating and wanting to get to Coachella or I don't know but you know something like this and like you get in such bad traffic you can't make it right or you are planning to meet your family somewhere and your flight gets cancelled and you and you're sitting there in an the airport and you're crying because you can't be there like that's I think a big part of it for me Right? I felt like I had robbed myself of a destination that i was trying to get to that's the end of the virginity story christianity's relationships to bodies uh human bodies right this stuff is fraught difficult right controlling bodies defining bodies all the while strangely disregarding bodies right christianity has long pushed to sort of dualism. This is from the email if you read it. Uh, this dualism between good and evil represented in spirit and flesh. Right, your body is whack, an enemy of your real self. The scholar Kelly Brown Douglas, she puts it this way. The soul is divin- divinized divinized, sorry, and the body is demonized. It's hard not to see that when you kind of set this thing up, why uh, things like desires and sexual things, genitals, all that, uh, bodily functions are regarded with great suspicion and often great hostility, right? There are sacred things in the world and there are profane things in the world and the powers that be, and we often know uh, what those powers look like, who they look like, the powers that be have historically deemed the body to be How do we get here? I think is a complicated uh, question. Here's one way to think about it. Um, if you're any student of modern or postmodern thought, uh, you know that sort of in the critical examination of things, we've come to see mm-hmm. that um, everything is an interpretation, right? There is no objective, total out, God's eye view, as it were. And if you read the New Testament with that in mind, it becomes clear that those who witnessed things and retold them, wrote them down. We're interpreting them. We're translating them, if you will, because that's what humans do, right? And the era of that time in which Christ was doing his thing and Paul was writing things and all the uh, early church came out of is a Hellenistic era, right? The Greek, time of Greek culture and thought. And shot through all that stuff, particularly for the educated people, were particular notions about what constitutes reality, the self, truth, etc. Apologies here for you who are uh, hardcore philosophy, students or people. I have to give a very crude run through of this because I don't have a lot of time. But you might remember uh, from back in the day, Plato's Allegory of the Cave. Does anybody have like a one sentence explanation for the Allegory of the Cave? Okay, let's do two sentences. Yes. (laughs) Uh, They don't know. They're not used to the light. All they see are the shadows, right? The idea being that the shadows, if all you knew were shadows, the shadows are what you think is real. You don't even know that there is a a world outside of that. The point is, is that there is a reality in which we live, that we experience in our bodies, that is not the real reality. The real reality is up here, right? It's a sort of dualism again, that flesh, spirit. In philosophy, often it's mind and body, right? Um, And so this dualism that emerges is also a deep part of early Christian writing, right? Paul is the prime example. If you read the epistles, the language of that kind of dualism and the language of Greek philosophy is like ripe throughout. In this material reality, our bodies are are first and foremost imperfect vessels. Right, again, the real stuff is up there. And this dualism has endured through time, even, in my opinion, exponentially increased, uh, gotten deeper in Western thought and philosophy over the years from the medieval period on. And we walk so much in its fog that we do not even notice it at all. That's kind of what happens with stuff that just becomes taken as truth. And so, that we are living under this presumption is, I think, illuminated when we look at other ways that people have thought about these things. Right? If you read the Hebrew Bible, for example, you will find it amazing, if you look with this lens, how different the language is in the ways that it describes selfhood and the person and so forth. Right? This kind of dualism of spirit is not really a big part of Jewish thought or theology. No, everything is sort of bodied in a way. Right? I remember calling a, a friend of mine who is a, a He's Jewish and also a scholar, and I was preaching a sermon on heaven many years ago, and I wanted to get a sense, like, what, what did the Jews think about this back in the day? And he and the conversation was, like, so... We couldn't even really understand each other because he was, like, I don't really get what you're asking me, and I, he would say something, I'm like, I don't really get what you're saying. Because in Judaism, that wasn't... It's not a thing, right? This idea that, like, you die and your spirit goes somewhere or whatever. It's bodily always. If you ever noticed in the end of Mark this little part that gets glossed over on Easter that we should probably focus on a little bit more. When Christ dies, um, bodies dig themselves out of the grave, right? And raise up. Anyone remember this? Okay, right. Because that, the idea was back in those days that resurrection, um, being born again was not a spiritual thing. You don't go to heaven in the spirit, you actually, your whole body is resurrected so there's one example of a, of a sort of different lens through which people are viewing this stuff, right? It's not a dualistic one, it is an embodied bodily one, right? Uh, I was also looking another example here, um, Kelly Brown Douglas again, who I quoted earlier. And sort of critiquing the present condition of theology in the black church looks back to the origins of Christianity amongst the slaves who first came here, right? Who carried with them an understanding of things that was still fresh um, and... and greatly influenced by where they came from. She writes, For as black religion emerged within the enslaved community, it was shaped not by a Platonized theology defined by body-soul splits, but by an African heritage in which there is no sacred secular splits. This was a religious heritage in which all life was considered sacred, including the body, the flesh, sexuality. This is a religious heritage that undoubtedly allowed the enslaved crafters of black faith to participate, to appreciate the meaning of an incarnate god. This dualism is harmful for a lot of reasons. right? It creates a sort of binary that affects how we see gender, gender roles, sexuality. It upholds patriarchal values. It permits a devaluing of bodies that um, allows, in a lot of ways, for violence against those bodies, sexual and otherwise. It puts us at war with ourselves as we become to regard our own needs, our own desires. Maybe you guys talked about that last week as suspicious, and then suspicious in the most innocuous interpretation, and in the most destructive one as evil. This is a reality, I think, that demands to be, uh, and deserves to be overturned, to be turned over, because the story of God and Jesus and Christianity doesn't um, have to look like that. It doesn't have to look that way. I would argue that it was never really meant to look that way in the first place. because this is a story in which God so loved the world you know that famous verse God so loved the world that God took on the form of a human being right the ultimate act of solidarity and empathy and in doing so affirmed the inherent goodness and sacredness of our bodies of human bodies God didn't come down in an idea or a floating spirit right and again uh, back to the Hebrew Bible, God in there is a voice you hear, a bush that burns, a pillar of smoke, a still small voice. Elijah even sees God's butt, apparently, in one of these stories. But is a liberal interpretation of, on my part. Backside. The early church fathers, they would fought, fight about this point, whether or not uh, Jesus was just spirit or body. And they came is one of the nice things about dogmas and creeds and so forth, to uphold the very humanness of Christ, which I think is really important. This is a story about a God who so much wants to be with us. And the way that I see it, Christianity is a religion about a God who so desires the world that God came to be a part of it, flesh and bones. Flesh and blood, as it says in uh, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, or the Word became flesh and lived among us, as it says in the Gospel of John. God so desires the world so that desire might become relationship and relationship might become freedom and freedom might become love. Desire might become relationship, relationship might become freedom, freedom might become love. An important sequence, I think, that helped This is not the point of today's um, sermon as much, but that sort of sequence can constitute a sort of ethic, right? Here's how the rest of the quote from Douglas in this passage goes. For to be sure, inasmuch as Platonized thinking diminishes the body, then a Platonized Christianity obscures its very core, the incarnate revelation of God, Black religion, however, as it was shaped in slavery, was able to recognize that God's embodiment was crucial to any understanding of God's meaning in human history. Black religion, again, as created by the enslaved, also attested that it is only via the body flesh that human beings can reach out to God, and most significantly, that God can reach out to them. Your body is an indispensable thing, an indispensable part of that. And we need to do a lot of work here, right? This is um, something we have to take a lot of time to reflect on, the ways that we have told ourselves a very certain kind of story about who we are. This is deep, deep work, right? This is like lifelong work, unfortunately. Uh, as much as I love Good Will Hunting, you know, it's not the sort of like, it's not your fault, and like, it's all better, right? This is a continual process that we take on. Often the work of uh, this sort of charitable destabilization I talked about is to reveal a a presupposition that we have that exists right under the surface. This thing here, this this affirming of ourselves, um, is is acknowledging an idea that we already know. Somewhere, right, it's sort of buzzing around there, right? What we're doing here is sort of digging deep to see how far it goes down. And if there's something that we can do for each other in this time as we do this, um, and if I could say something to you, right? To affirm for each other our goodness, right? That you are good, your body is good. Your sexuality, your desires are gifts. To be listened to, to be nourished. Our true calling in the eyes of God is not a constant sublimation of our desires, but a freedom to desire, to flourish in our bodies. And this is not just about intercourse, sorry, I almost did. It's not just about intercourse, right? But the diversity of ways our bodies relate to the world, gender, sexuality, all that stuff. The diversity of ways in which we express our desire. Right? It's sacred, holy, and good. That's the only thing you remember today. That's all you need to remember. Right? We need to claim that truth in the deepest part of ourselves right? and do the work it takes to untangle and cast off all the things that tell us otherwise. And so as I end here today, this is where we actually are beginning, right? Where we end up on this again, like I said, I don't know for sure. Um, But if we're going to arrive at any place that is um, healthy, if we're going to arrive at any place that is loving, that is just, right, that is full of grace, a sexual ethic, a way of understanding this stuff, it has to begin with this fundamental truth. The the affirmation, the the goodness of ourselves. Without that, all the rest of it will fly off into the ether of the really real. It has to start here. So let's do that together as we move forward this month. Amen? Amen.